Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for cult stories, education, and experiences. Don't be culty, huns. Hey, Hunbots and Hun Bros. I'm really excited about this episode today because it is sort of the intermediary into Scientology. I met Marilyn through Michelle through SPTV, which is a Scientology YouTube community. It's really great. We're going to be talking to a lot of those creators in the next couple episodes. And Marilyn is this really great bridge between Christianity and Scientology. And we're going to start looking at the similarities between the two. I am really excited for the next couple episodes so we can start to compare and contrast. I feel like there's just going to be so many hamster wheels spinning in all of our heads. But I do also want to say that this episode is really heavy. Marilyn is so delightful and so wonderful. And she tells this story in such an upbeat and happy way that you kind of forget that she has this really horrific backstory. So I want to let you know that we talk about all of it. And it is very heavy. We're going to talk about death and abuse and Pentecostal cults, talk about being a lost child and a troubled teen and a runaway and foster care and adoption. There's so many topics in Marilyn's story, and it is really just such a beautiful survivor story. I'm really excited for you to meet her. I also wanted to update you if you have not been following along on social media. There is a new MLM that just recently launched called Transact Card. And I normally wouldn't like call attention to an MLM in the housekeeping like this. But the amount of backlash that I have gotten from the people who are hawking this scam is otherworldly. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I can't even remember. Maybe when Lula Rich came out, it's like that level of pushback. It's very interesting. If you are interested in learning more about Transact Card, We talked about it on Patreon. We did a little bit of a deep dive. There are multiple videos on my TikTok and Instagram. And I am just really going to be paying special attention to this in the next couple weeks. So if you are interested in this very strange, weird debit card, MLM scam pyramid scheme thing, definitely follow along. I'll be updating on social media. I've already been sent screenshots where I'm like, oh, I need to make a video like right now. So I just wanted to let you know if if you're one of the people (laughs) that is really interested in what's going on with Transact Card, don't worry, there is more content coming. And if you were scammed by Transact Card already, and you want to talk about it, please email me. I want to talk to you. I want to I want to learn more about this. Very, very curious. The last thing that I want to mention in this episode is um, about two thirds of the way in the audio starts to get a little wonky. This was a recording and uploading error that that happened because of Wi-Fi. Um, And we did our absolute best. Marilyn was such a trooper. She sat and watched that upload for so long. And eventually I just said, hey, it's okay. We will do our best on the other side. Kayla did her best. And then I went through and tried to clean it up even a little bit more. So I do want to apologize. 
it just was a connection issue and there wasn't really anything that we can do. But this interview was so good. We salvaged it and I salvaged as much of the wonky audio as I absolutely could. So I do apologize for like clicks and like the kind of sound. I really do. I know I hate it too. I did my absolute best to clean it up and I appreciate the understanding. (laughs) It's not too bad, but it's enough to be like, does she know? I know. I do know. I did my best. (laughs) That's all I can offer you guys. So I just want to say you guys are the best and I love you. Love bombing, love bombing, love bombing. (laughs) I hope it makes up for it. Anyway, Without further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. If you guys notice that my voice is a little wonky, it is. The weather is changing and I have a little bit of seasonal vocal fry. I apologize, but this episode is worth it. So you're not even going to notice I would like to welcome to the show my guest, Marilyn Honig. I am so excited to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm great, Roberta. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm jumping out of my skin. (laughs) I just love you. I'm really excited to help tell your story because the other day we hopped on a chat and it was really informative. Like I I came away with so much more than I expected because we were going to talk about one specific thing and you're like, let me just start from the beginning. And your entire story made me just go, oh, wow. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the beginning and we're going to work our way toward the end. So I will say there are some content warnings here. We're going to talk about a lot of heavy stuff. But yes, please let us know how this entire nightmare started. Well, when I was five years old, I had a terrible tragedy in my family. Uh, There was a horrific house fire and I lost my mother and three siblings in the fire. And I was rescued and I had third degree burns on my hands and second degree on my face. And I was hospitalized for several months. And as you can imagine, it was so, so devastating. And I was pretty much alone. Uh, My father took off and he became a raging alcoholic. I didn't see him much in the next couple of years. He actually was not on my birth certificate. So there really wasn't anyone to claim me for a while. And when I was released from the hospital, finally, I'd pretty much been there way too long. It was actually in the newspaper saying, Marilyn, age five, remains in the hospital while officials figure out where she will go. So I had a lot of treatment there. And then I pretty much was living pillar to post, as they say, with various relatives, friends of relatives. I was taken in by a adopted sister that I didn't really know. My mom had adopted her earlier in life and she was a drug addict. She was pretty much out of it all the time. I don't really remember her even speaking to me. So that my primary caretaker living with them was her boyfriend. His name was Mark. And he was a monster. He was a monster. He abused me pretty much in every way and would play really terrible mind games on me, would put a glass of Kool-Aid in front of me and time how fast I could drink it. And then he would put a glass of really lumpy powdered milk that I would choke on and try to time me and make me drink it in the same time 
that I drank the Kool-Aid. He would show me Playboy magazines and do some really horrific things, uh, exposing himself to me. I was so confused. I didn't know what was happening. I just remember all these like awful mind games he would play with me. And then finally, I was taken out of that situation. My only sister that survived the fire had turned 18 and she took me to the opposite end of the state, but she was not in a good state either uh, as far as mental state. And, you know, again, I was couch hopping. She didn't know what to do with me. I changed schools four times in a year. And sometimes I didn't go to school. I tried living with my biological father for a while. And he had become, like I said, a raging alcoholic and would hallucinate and think that I was his dead aunt laughing at him and he would beat me. I had to go to school and lie about it. I mean, it was just, you know, it was awful. But to me, I didn't know any better. And uh, I think I just started to maybe turn it on myself a little bit. And I started pulling my hair out. I was wetting the bed. Well, the couches. Um, Finally, this was almost four years after the fire, Child Protective Services finally stepped in, (laughs) you know, finally, and put me in foster care. I went to live with a family. With me, it was 12. It was 10 kids and three of the kids were biological and seven were foster kids. And the family, I mean, they were lovely. They really tried. My adopted mom just had so many kids and she had a history of mental illness herself, which I don't really understand how that whole thing fell through the cracks, having so many kids handed to her by the state. And it was pretty much well-documented, but I never knew that till I got older, that uh, she was bipolar and had a lot of lot of problems, but she did her best. My adopted dad was just a nice, kind, salt of the earth kind of guy, but he really let my mother wear the pants in the family. And she insisted that we all go to church. So we attended an Assemblies of God church. Well, let's pause for a second really quick, because I want to talk more about this phenomenon of you being a tiny child and couch surfing for years of your life. Yeah. I don't really understand it either. Yeah. I'm like flabbergasted that this happened. And this happened because you didn't have anybody on your birth certificate that was in charge of you. Your mother had passed away in the fire. Your father wasn't on the birth certificate. There was no legal ramifications for anybody to take any kind of claim of you. And instead of saying, hey, that's my niece or whatever and taking care of you, they just let you wander around as a child starting at age five. Right. And she did have her estranged husband on my birth certificate, the father of my other siblings, but I never had met him. I didn't know him. So eventually when the adoption went through when I was nine, we had to hunt him down and have him sign the adoption certificate and the adoption papers. (sighs) I mean, this sort of phenomenon, it's called being a lost child, like someone that just slips through the cracks and just is not, you're not even a ward of the state. Like they're not even involved yet. No, I never remember having anyone checking up on me, no social services or anything. I never met a social worker until I was placed in the foster home. I was almost nine years old. I was eight and three quarters. 
you get placed in this foster home. They have 10 other children already, which it's kind of a red flag to me in foster care to have so many of the children that you have to be fosters and still accepting more fosters. I know there are better rules now. Mm-hmm. This was many years ago. 1979. Mm-hmm. 1979. Okay. It still seems like a really gigantic red flag to me that the state would just be like, oh, you want another kid? Here you go. No problem. Like no background checks, no looking into things. It's just like, oh, finally somebody that wants to take this lost child. Sure. Great. No longer our problem. Right. Pretty much. And there was, you know, because it was such a strict Christian atmosphere, there was corporal punishment. We get lined up and spanked with a wooden spoon and, you know, things like that. So there wasn't any rules like, you know, against that. And we attended church a lot, a lot, at least three times a week. Wow. So you were saying that the church that you attended was a church within the Assemblies of God Mm -hmm. churches. Yes. And again, this was in the 70s when the charismatic movement was big. So it could get really wild, really wild. Right. The Pentecostal like tent revival preachers, the pre- Mega church preachers. Exactly. So you had the speaking in tongues, the wow. raising the hands, the uh, quote healings that were a little suspect. Right. Just uh, it was really scary at first, but it also could be kind of fun and funny because everybody just seemed so happy and the music was loud and they'd have puppet shows and all kinds of sensational stuff and miracles going on. But there was definitely a dark, scary side to it. Super dark and scary. And as I got older, I would be terrified. I could imagine like some of the things that you experienced as a child coming from where you came from, not having any certainty or knowing where you're going to be the next day, and then getting adopted into this really big family and going to church where there's this built-in community There's music, there's people you're seeing constantly, familiarity is starting to become a thing for you. You're like, oh, it's the same people over and over again. Stability, familiarity, and there's these tent revivals, there's these charismatic preachers on stage, there are people performing miracles. And I could imagine a child going from one extreme to the other and feeling comfort like you're saying you're feeling at this church. Yeah, because it it was just seemed so welcoming. But then at the same time, I was one of 10 kids piling into a van. And I had a lot of emotional and mental issues. And I was I was a mess. I never remember anyone sitting me down, talking through any of my childhood, no counseling, no thought to mental health care at all. That just wasn't a thing. And you've got all of these issues. I was pulling my hair out. I wet the bed. I had all kinds of problems that pretty much would tell you this girl needs help. But because I was kind of, kind of felt almost like a number, just pile in the van, go to the church, you know, do your thing. This is what is expected of you. And meanwhile, I'm having night terrors because not only had I gone through all that trauma, but I'm being told if I don't obey Jesus and his will, accept him in my heart, become baptized, I will burn in fire forever and ever and ever. And I remember laying there as a nine, 10 year old, 
trying to imagine what it would feel like to not only be in a fire like I was, and I do have memories of it, the sights, the sounds, the the pain, the feeling, but forever and ever and ever. And I, I never felt like I was going to go to heaven. I never felt like I was good enough. And then there was the rapture. And I would be in the store and I would lose track of one of my adopted siblings or my mom and they were gone. And I was, oh, the rapture happened. And because we had been sat down and made to watch the series called A Thief in the Night about the rapture, these scary, horrible movies. I remember being in the sanctuary of the church at nine, 10 years old and watching one particular installment of A Thief in the Night called A Distant Thunder. And it was about the rapture and it was about, quote, lukewarm Christians that weren't really, they say they were Christians, but they really didn't have Jesus in their heart. They really weren't doing the will of God, which I felt was probably me, you know, because I never felt like Jesus was in my heart. So if they wanted to still go to heaven and they miss the rapture, everybody's gone and they don't want to take the mark of the beast. If you take the mark 666, on your hand or your forehead, then you would definitely not go to heaven. You will burn forever and ever. So it was a choice of, okay, burn forever and ever or face the guillotine and get beheaded. So again, I'm 10 years old. I'm thinking about this. And it says in the Bible, no one could buy or sell unless they take the mark of the beast. So if you don't want to go to hell, you have to starve. You have to be running around and, I don't know, trying to survive until they catch you and chop your head off. And then you go to heaven, but you don't go to good heaven. You don't get a mansion because you didn't end up in the rapture. So you end up in a shack in heaven. I thought about all this as a kid. I really believed it. Yeah, that's a lot. That's too much for a kid. That's really way too much for a kid. What the hell are Christians doing? (laughs) That's wild. Like That's just, no, stop all of that. That's not okay. The fact that you come from this already traumatic life, you get thrown into a Pentecostal family who is all about this tent revival movement and speaking in tongues and all of this. And then you're forced to watch these movies about how once you have the mark of the beast, the only way to get into heaven is to cut your head off and live in a shack. Like, it's not okay. Like, it's it's wild. Like, I can't even I can't even grasp my mind. Like. Do you know what I mean? This is how I know I wasn't raised for sure in a church because this stuff to me, whoo. I have to correct you though. If you get the mark of the beast, you get to keep your head, but you're going to hell. Okay. You don't get your head chopped off if you take the mark of the beast. Oh, If you want to go to heaven, you get your head chopped off. Right. So if you have the mark of the beast on your head, on your forehead, 666, you're going to hell. But you have a contingency plan if you decide to change your mind that you can get your head cut off and instead of going to fancy heaven where all the good people go you get to go to this like mid heaven which is like where all the headless people hang out in their shacks yeah i guess but you're not burning no one rose their hand and they're like i have a question about this i mean oh you don't question it's the bible says it i believe it that's wild That's right. That's what got me in trouble with my other cult, too. So I get it. I asked too many questions. (laughs) Aside from the fire and brimstone and headless poverty heaven, what are some of these other wild things that you're not allowed to do in this religion? Okay. So we were actually in public school. Later on, my 
adoptive mom had uh, decided to homeschool her two youngest that were her biological children. But before that, we were all in public school. We weren't allowed to go to dances, listen to any rock music, nothing like that, nothing worldly, right? And if there was a, a worldly book introduced in the public school, I remember her marching into the high school of one of my older foster brothers, and it was called Native Son. And I think there was something, there was nudity or something in the book, right? And she went to the PTG and she made a big stink and he was embarrassed. And, you know, so this was the kind of stuff we had to deal with. So I was just sort of a, a, a freak because I wasn't allowed to do any of that. So as I got older, I started to sneak listening to rock music because the only time I really listened to rock music before that was at church, but we listened to it backwards because backward masking was. um... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really funny, Marilyn. (laughs) Okay. I can't make this shit up. (laughs) I want to know about the rock music that you listened to backwards. And then after that, I want to know about the rock music that you listened to in secret. Okay. So the rock music that we listened to backwards, we went to a youth group and they had a record player there, you know, the old fashioned record player with the uh, 33 big, you know, whatever they call that speed. And there were some albums like there was hotel california by the eagles and led zeppelin stairway to heaven and you know just all different ones and i was really fascinated i was like these are really cool you know so they started playing them backwards and something about uh hotel california so something about satan they're like listen listen it says i'm like i don't hear it It says you know (laughs) Then there was Stairway to Heaven was supposed to say something about my sweet Satan. Uh, There's power in Satan. I'm like, I don't hear it. Can I hear it forward? But you know what, though? It scared the shit out of me because I went home and I was so scared. Like, oh, my God. Like, because that was another thing. I'd seen demons be cast out of people and the frothing at the mouth and the convulsions and everything. So I really believed in demons. And, you know, this was like kind of the, the foundation of me worried about like because there was this kind of thing where like oh don't listen to that thought that's the devil lying to you that's the devil tempting you that's the devil or that's your own old man because you know you were born a sinner so you have this sin nature Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester, and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard-approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. 
They have become an absolute favorite and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet, and they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. And so there's a Holy Spirit talking to you. There's the devil talking to you. There's their old man talking to you. There's your your new born again person. I didn't know what fucking voice to listen to. You know, I was like, is that God? Is that the devil? Is that me? Like they made me insane. (laughs) Well, I remember when we chatted earlier before we hit record and we were talking about the playing music backwards. And I said to you that it reminded me of the early days of being a very young mom when I would sit up at like 3 a.m. and pump milk with my breast pump. And anybody that's like has ever done this in the dark with nothing to think about, overtired, I just want to go back to bed, but I have to do this thing. Sitting there listening to the breast pump, like make this weird noise, like for like, you know, a half an hour. And I started hearing things work for me and things like that. So yeah, of course, if you're listening to the Eagles Hotel California backwards, you might hear be friends with Satan. If you listen enough times, you're like, that kind of sounds like this. I mean, I know that my breast pump wasn't trying to recruit me into its breast pump scheme. So I know that I was hearing things. It's the same sort of thing. If you listen to something and the cadence of something long enough, you're going to hear something else. I mean, people mishear lyrics all the time when they're listening to it like the right way. I could imagine what you would hear listening to it backwards, especially if you're looking for something. Right. Yeah. And being a kid, you know, you're like, okay, that's what it says. Whatever. You know, 
I, I just wanted to fit in at school. I just wanted to have fun. I mean, it was the 80s and I wanted to have big hair and I wanted to go to dance. I wanted, I wanted to go roller skating and couldn't because there was rock music at the roller skating rink. So the church would try to have fun stuff to replace that. You know, we'd go to conventions and out with all the loud music. As I got older, they would have, quote, Christian rock, which was never the same. You know, it's like near beer, right? So <laughs> I don't know. I, I started to realize that I probably was going to hell anyways, right? So I might as well have fun doing it. So once I got to high school, I was like, enough of this. And I was going into my senior year and I just wanted to go to prom. And, you know, I guess I feel a little bad about it now because I've been kind of accused of not really having loyalty to my big Christian family, but I was like, the hell with it. You know, I, I didn't feel a huge amount of loyalty to them. And I was like, I'm out of here. I, I just, I just want to go to prom. So I ran away. I actually ended up in a, a home temporarily for troubled teens where you have to like take your shoes off at the door and they kind of frisk you and you go and you, you have like the first week you can't leave the facility and then they start driving you to school. And then finally I was placed in a foster home for a year until I aged out of the foster system. They were lovely people. I got to go to prom. I graduated, kind of uh, barely graduated from high school. Really was always a you know nominal student, just barely, barely passed. But I got to have a lot of friends and I just had fun. And then when I aged out, I ended up couch hopping again. And then I took off to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, because I was living in Western Mass. I took off to Cape Cod, kind of sowed my oats for a couple years and was having different jobs. And then right when I turned 20, I went home because my birthday's in December. I went home for Christmas to my adopted parents. And my mom, who was, she was the one that made all the decisions. Let's face it. She really, I really don't remember my dad talking to me about any of this. Uh, she basically said, I know you're having a hard time finding somewhere to live, finding a steady job. You're welcome to come home, but you need to understand that you have to go to church again. And I was like, oh, I can't go back to that church. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's a new church. It's a better church. And there's a wonderful Bible teacher. Her name's Marlene Sweeney. And she basically had been a Bible study teacher, having home Bible studies from people from our Assemblies of God and two other Assemblies of God, pretty much 40 minutes in each direction. So she, what she did was she plucked a group of people out of each Assemblies of God church. And, you know, she wasn't that sensational. I mean, I won't say she wasn't charismatic because she very much was. She acted very motherly, very caring, calm, um, knew the Bible backwards and forwards. She had been Catholic and became Pentecostal, but she was big on this wonderful series of seminars that she'd been to for many years over and over of this teacher called Bill Gothard. So she was a Bill Gothard follower. She had listened to all of his doctrine and, and preachings from the IBLP. And so it was a mixture. She just kind of threw all kinds of stuff, ex-Catholic Pentecostal IBLP fundamentalism stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And her appearance was very nondescript. 
She looks like Keith Raniere's twin sister. She looks like a female version of Keith Raniere. Oh my god! <laughs> like the mousy brown hair, the Coke bottle glasses, a little chunky. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, just to recap, real quick, you say I am not doing this anymore. You leave. You go to Cape Cod. You sow your oats. You have a good time. You say enough of this. I'm going to come home. And your mom says, yeah, but you got to go back to church. But we got this new charismatic leader named Marlene. You're going to love her. She teaches Bill Gothard IBLP. It's this whole thing. It's so great. She teaches other people we know. She's been vetted throughout our community. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, let's give it a try. Right. Exactly. I was like, at this point, I knew I was going to hell. I figured, you know, at some point I was going to have to face the music and come back to God because, you know, God forbid the rapture came and all that because it's always the end, always the end times. And I was worried because uh, I had done some things, you know, I kind of on Cape Cod, I was having a lot of fun. Some wild oats. Yes, I did. I did. I had a lot of fun doing it. But then I was like, okay, now it's always saying you got to get right with God. You got to get your heart right with God. So I was like, okay. So I started going to the church for about a year. And then Marlene decided she was going to open up a new ministry. And it was a live-in ministry. And she chose 12 disciples. It was a discipleship ministry. Just so happened that there were 12 of us in our 20s and 30s. Okay, And at first, so we all moved in. And it was this old, beautiful old inn. I don't know if you've ever seen the show New Heart. It's an old kind of like sitcom with Bob Newhart. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Remember that old, the old inn? Like that's where I lived and just like that. It was called the Old Coach Inn. It's built in the 1700s. Beautiful, beautiful place. All rooms up top. And we were sort of like the monks. We lived in the bedrooms upstairs and the congregation would come on Sundays. It was a very small place. It was probably in its heyday, maybe 50 of us in the church with, with all the families and the relatives and stuff that would come on Sundays. So we were kind of like the, like Scientology's Sea Org. Like we served the the parishioners. So we had that place like shining like the top of the Chrysler building. Marlene would talk to us because, you know, this was heavily influenced by Bill Gothard teachings about the umbrella of authority, about humbling yourself, giving up your soul to God. You know, uh, he saves your soul. So you didn't really have a say in anything. And it got more and more and more strict. And here we are, adults, but we were basically hanging on Marlene's every word. And so she would give me a sponge and say, watch the inside of the toilet bowls with your bare hands. And I would do it because, you know, I'm serving God and I'm humbling myself before God. Then she started to declare one day fasts. So we wouldn't eat for a day. Then three day fasts. And so on. I never got to the 10-day fast, but we all started to get more and more thin, uh, more and more compliant. She would have us sit in this big room at night and listen to these cassette tapes of her droning on about hellfire and brimstone. You're never good enough. Commit yourself to God. You know, he may save you if you're good enough, whatever. And I would sit in the back of the room and crochet. And if she knew that I loved to crochet as much as I do, even now, 
She probably would have told me I couldn't because she said, we always had to give up anything we liked because they were idols. You know, later on, my children were idols. So I had an idol. I had a crochet hook and some yarn. And I didn't crochet anything really fun and mocking like I do now, nowadays. But I was crocheting blankets and sweaters and stuff. And I think that it kept me enough in my body to not totally lose my mind like other people around me were. And my future husband, he kind of said the same thing. He would go and jump in the pond and swim across. And that's kind of how he got his hit of dopamine or whatever good, you know, good feels and, and good chemicals in his body to keep him from going totally nuts. And people did have mental breakdowns and some were hospitalized. Wow. It's very interesting to me to hear that she really took away any semblance of enjoyment for any of the hobbies, but that because your hobby also served a purpose, you were allowed to keep it and she didn't make it a thing. Right. Yeah, because I was, you know, the Pentecostal denomination, sect, religion, whatever, branch of religion is really into giving like title, not titles, but like callings. Okay. So my calling was as a servant. My calling was as a helpmeet and somebody who was just kind of in the background. Now, I don't really have that kind of personality, you know, <laughs> but I had to basically submit and just be this little mouse in the corner crochet and taking ammonia water and, and washing baseboards and floors. That was my calling. Now I loved art. Like I was pretty good at sketching. I'm, you know, a mediocre singer. I could carry a tune. I love to sing. I love, I love to do karaoke now, but no, 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 no. You're not called as an artist. You're not called as a singer. You're called as a servant and a helpmeet and a crocheter, I guess, you know, to keep people warm. So that was my place. Wow. And if you stepped out of place, you were humiliated. You were put in a room with the board of elders. They would lay hands. They said, Marilyn, we've discerned that you have hidden rebellion or you have a spirit of this or that. I've had a demon of Leviathan. I've had a demon of Jezebel. I've had a demon of Achan. All kinds of demons from, you know, the Old Testament. So they would lay hands on you. And Marlene had some, I call them minions. She had some older ladies that were like spies. They would spy on us and they would tattle to Marlene. Very big snitch culture there. And Marlene would lay hands on me, start speaking in tongues. And she would open one eye and she would look at one of her minions. We'll call her Sally. And she would say, Sally, the, the Lord has shown me that you have a word for Marilyn. So Sally would sit there and she'd be like, oh, damn, I got to come up with a word for Marilyn. She'd say, um, well, God told me that she has a spirit of, mm, um, I'm thinking of a word, thinking of a word, Achan. Now, Achan in the Bible was a guy who took idols and gold and silver from the battle, uh, spoils of battles of the Israelites, you know, in the Old Testament, and he hid them under his tent. And God ended up getting really mad and having everybody take his whole, uh, here comes fire again, his whole family and stoned them to death and burned them and put them in a valley. 
And there's a, you know, just as an aside, there's a verse in the Bible that says, and this was the Valley of Achor, that Achan was executed with his family, babies, the whole family, wives and, and everything, concubines, whatever they had back then. And it was called the Valley of Achor. Now there's a verse in the Bible that says, I will take the Valley of Achor and turn it into a door of hope. Now, door of hope was the name of our church. And, you know, it was the only true church too, is what she said. So back to my getting the hands laid on me when they said that I had demons and my demon was Achan, in order to get out of that room, I would just confess. I would just be like, oh, yes, uh, sorry. I'm sorry. I have a demon of Achan. I'll repent. I have, de- I have, yeah, yeah. It was insane. So I was constantly being brought before the board. My neckline was a tiny bit down. Forget about it. I mean, are you telling me that they would actually use your trauma as a child and losing your family as proof that you had the spirit of Achan because his family also was killed? You know, I never really thought about it, but my husband, Duncan, who escaped the cult with me, he said that Marlene in particular, he felt like she targeted me and a few others more than more than anyone. So I don't know. She was just a sick, sick person. I mean, it's a wild coincidence that the person in the Bible that you embody also has the same traumatic, like, issues with their family and death. Like, it's just, it seems too much of a coincidence to not seem like it's connected, especially since we know that this woman is a charismatic, manipulative cult leader. And that's what these kind of people do. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, my God. So how long did you stay with Door of Hope? Okay, so I lived in the building for almost six years. So almost six years of this. And finally, my soon-to-be husband was also living there. I was 26. He was 38. And he had been there about five years, almost as long as me. And we were completely celibate. We weren't even allowed. And neither of us were virgins because we had both sold our oats, you know, as, as like youth and 20 somethings, but we weren't even allowed to hold hands. We did sneak a couple kisses before we got married, but yeah, we got permission to get married Wow! and we had to get permission. And, you know, I lucked out because there weren't that many guys there. You know, there was only like 12 of us. And pretty much half of us were women and half were men. And, you know, he was just just such a, a sweet, sweet person. He never really bought into all the Gothard stuff. Like Marlene had said that, you know, she was into the patriarchal things, even though she was a woman. Her excuse for that, being the, the leader, being the cult leader or the church leader, was that God told her, because she's a prophetess, right? God told her that there were no other men in our area that were qualified to lead his flock here in this area. So he anointed her like Deborah in the Bible or or any of the very tiny handful of women in the Bible that were given the anointing that was her. And she didn't want it. She didn't want it. She's like, oh, God is just making me do this. and I'm doing it for you. I'm giving my life's blood for you, you know. So anyways, we got married and we moved a couple of miles away, but we we're still very much involved in Door of Hope. And Duncan was working really hard to support us, but he was also giving every extra penny to the church. And here we are. We had barely held hands or kissed. Now it's 
populate the earth, right? Now it's get down. And we're like, <laughs> okay. It felt weird, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't know if I've ever like experienced these kind of stories more than I have when I learn about Christianity, where they're like, our whole lives we were told sex is bad, don't do it. And then the night we're married, it's like, sex is great, never mind, do everything. And hurry up because you have to be very fruitful and populate the earth as fast as you can. Right. And they're like, we haven't even kissed yet. What? Like, it's so weird. There's no preparation for like adult relationships. It's wild, right? It's insane. Anyway, continue. Well, luckily we knew where everything went because we weren't virgins, you know, because we had, we had sowed our oats and then we came and we were celibate for five years. So, you know, we knew what to do, but but even then Marlene was trying to control us, like only do mission position. This is what you have. You know, it was just even then. And we were like, that's not going to work for us. So she wasn't there. She didn't know. Within three and a half years, we had three kids and I had three very difficult pregnancies. We had three kids under four years old. And when I had my youngest, my second son, he was born with a, a cleft lip and palate. So I had, I guess, special permission to stop having kids, you know, and I had a tubal ligation. I got my tubes tied because we knew that he was going to have a lot of, a lot of surgeries and stuff. But I think the reason why Marlene did not give me a hard time about getting my tubes tied was because she didn't want any more Marilyn's running around. (laughs) Because my daughter was three and a half at the time, and she was a little hellion. Her first full sentence was, I'm not cooperating with daddy. She gave Marlene a run for her money from pretty much day one. We were homeschooling, doing the IBLP and a mixture of other things. We, you know, because we had, we had the truth. We, we had our own Petri dish. Remember the, the beaker? A little bit of IBLP, a little bit of this, a little bit of that and blah, blah, blah. So I do remember having to kind of use this, this book. I have a copy of it in front of me as a reminder to train up a child. Marley wanted me to do blanket training putting your child in the middle of a blanket. And this always makes me cry. This always gets me. But, it, you know, I feel like it needs to be said. I was so happy to have a family finally. I was so happy to have children. I didn't know how to be a mom. Never felt like I really had one, had been nurtured. But I really loved my kids and I wanted to nurture them. I wanted to give them something I didn't have. So, hell no, I was not going to hit my child for reaching for their favorite toy. So, I would just do enough to try to appease God, which was Marlene, right? And I would say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm following it. I did the course. I did wrap them on the butt with with a wooden spoon, which I have apologized to them a million times about. I couldn't bring myself to treat my kids like that. And To Train a Child is the child training book by Michael and Debbie Pearl, which the Duggars used. And it's been used by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of families. And they've sold two and a half million copies of their, their crap. 
when my daughter turned seven, she was at church one day. We were all at church and there was this food pantry in the back in the church. And Duncan and I were giving, you know, not tons, but you know, he had some inheritance. He was always giving whatever extra. And I wouldn't even say extra because we have three little kids to support. So we were going without while Marlene was, was dressed in nice clothing, you know, like London fog coats and, and a closet full of L.L. Bean and Land's End and matching everything. And, and we were wearing hand-me-downs from Goodwill pretty much, which didn't make sense at all. My daughter went into the food pantry and grabbed a little pack of chiclets. And this food pantry was uh, was subsidized by the government. They were supposed to be uh, handing this food out to the community, but no, 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 they never outreached anything community. So they're getting government subsidies and keeping it for themselves. So, you know, Haley went in, she doesn't mind if I say her name, took a pack of chiclets. All of a sudden, she was brought before the board. So they laid hands on her because she had evil spirits. For taking a pack of gum? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And there were men. She said at least one or two men in the room. And they were like laying hands on her, bearing down on her, and casting out spirits. Seven years old, one of the spirits she remembers was Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was like, called them harlot, can I call uh, so they're casting out spirit of a harlot in a seven-year-old. For stealing gum. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. I don't see how anybody could hear a story like this and be like, yeah, she deserved it. A seven-year-old girl who is in a cult, who has every single thing in her life restricted to the moment. And, you know, she's a little Marilyn walking around. She's a little rebellious little thing. She's a seven-year-old girl. Like, I get it. Been there, done that takes a pack of gum and then has to have adult men put their hands on her and cast out the spirit of Jezebel. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. I wonder what kind of spirits are in the hands of those creepy old men. Disgusting. I know. I know. And I think that was the beginning of the end for me. I wish I grabbed her and ran out of there, but I was paralyzed. Because I had been there, I had been a cult for 15 years at that point. And that was just Dorf Hope. That wasn't all of the conditioning that I got in as, as a kid, you know, and a teenager. So I started to kind of start to question things in my mind. And luckily, my husband also was doing the same. And about a year later, we didn't go to church. We were feeling sick. We all got the flu. And I didn't recover. And it turns out I had developed fibromyalgia. And of course, that was blamed on the devil. It was blamed on my you know, rebellion, my hidden rebellion. And I was so sick, I couldn't get out of bed for like nine months. I finally started to do my own researching online. And that, I think going online for the first time, this was in 2006, kind of opened me up to, you know, knowledge, right? So I started to go to the rheumatologist and he basically told me, you're not crazy. It is a thing. It's definitely a condition and you're, you're going to be okay. You know? So it was like somebody believed me. It wasn't the devil rebellion, you know, to feel better. Duncan and I, and I started to rebel a little bit. We started to watch movies 
We started to drink a little bit of wine at night. We started to let our kids play with worldly kids. We snuck in and started letting take music lessons and gymnastics. Yeah, yeah. You heathens. I know. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you allow your children to play with worldly children? (laughs) Worldly children. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so we just started to like distance ourselves and Marlene started to realize that she was starting to lose us. She was also losing her partial free meal ticket because she depended on certain families in the church to work their asses off and give every spare penny to the church. Duncan's he had an aunt that passed away and he gave a huge chunk to Marlene to put a down payment on a new building because at that point the big old beautiful inn we had been renting it for many years and it was just too big for the amount of people that were living in the ministry plus they were selling it and Marlene couldn't afford to buy it so we put a down payment on a smaller building and that was actually not too long before we ended up leaving that he put the, the down payment on and I was resentful because Marlene was telling us, die to yourself, take up your cross, Jesus, don't ever have your own opinions, don't have any thought for yourself, don't have any preferences, right? So we weren't allowed to have any preferences, but when it came time to paint the the rooms in the new ministry house, she had Duncan come up, picked up, she picked out some paint, he painted the rooms. She didn't quite like the shade of the paint. So she picked out another and he went, painted the whole thing again, hours and hours and hours painting. And she didn't quite like that shade either. So there we go again, third time, another shade of paint. Some people ask like, what was the breaking point of you leaving a cult? And sometimes it's the smallest thing. It's just the something that just really, you know, burns your biscuits, like that paint. When she made him go up there and three different shades, when she's telling us that we can't have opinions, I was like, hmm. So I started to like get a little bit cheeky with her and a little, mm, you know, and so did Haley because she always follows my lead. (laughs) So did my daughter. Well, I mean, isn't that what paint swatches are for? Like, that's why you go to Home Depot or wherever and you get the paint swatches and you put them against the wall and you get the little sample can and you make a little mark and you say, do I like that or not? The fact that she's doing this is abusive. It's controlling. It literally is just a test to see how much of Duncan's time she can waste. That's it. That's all it is. Oh, I don't like it. Do it again. I don't like it. Do it again. It's very like off with their heads. Like it's so ridiculous. Yeah. You know, he's got three little children at home. You know, he's working his ass off trying to support us. And yeah, she didn't care. She didn't care. (sighs) Yeah, it was awful. And so she realized that I wasn't having it anymore. So she called Duncan one day and he's a very melt guy, doesn't like to make waves, you know, it's like, you know, that's how we ended up staying for so long is both of us, we just never stood up to her, you know, I think that pissed him off too. (laughs) So, so I remember the phone ring one day and I just had this bad feeling and told Duncan that God had given her a word for Marilyn and that she was going to come down and lay hands on me again 
And I know it wasn't a good word. It was another terrible prophecy from the Old Testament that I was going to be condemned or whatever. I I didn't even know it then, but I think what I had was a full-on anxiety attack. I dropped the laundry basket that I was, you know, I was doing laundry and I covered in the corner and I scream, I'm screaming, I'm out of my body. I'm I'm flailing my arms and screaming and like I'm swatting at bees, like I'm being, you know, being attacked by a swarm of bees. And I'm like, don't let her come, don't let her come. Don't. And he just kind of, he, his mouth dropped open, his eyes bugged out and he just kind of backed up and he's like, don't worry, I won't, I won't let her come. So he got, went back to the phone and he told Marlene, no, for the first time in wow. 16 years, he told her no. And it was like, you don't do that. You don't do that. So Marlene sent out the next day a mass email to all the the elders and people in the church. There's enemies that God was going to strike down, which were us. We were the enemies in the camp. And she called us before all these elders that I had known and loved for 16 years. I respected them. And they all just looked at the floor. And ignored us as she pronounced judgment on us. She said, and this is really funny, but it was so serious at the time, but I'm going to laugh my ass off. She said that that we and our children were going to end up on the dung heap. D-U-N-G, the shit pile. Oh, not the dung heap. (laughs) Not the dung heap. Oh, my God. I mean, I feel like the dung heap is better than headless poverty heaven. Yeah, but then, but if you're on the dung heap, then you're definitely going to burn forever and ever and ever. <laughs> you know, but at this point, we were we were in hell, and our children were, we were just in hell. So I was like, you know what? Again, like just like I was when I was 16. Screw it, I'm going to hell anyways. I'm going to end up on the dung heap, and I have. I'm I'm on the dung heap now, and I tell you what, the dung heap is amazing. I love it. But at the time, it was scary. And the things that they said would happen to my children, you know, have not happened, but it was so scary. And see, she knew what to say, usually be like, get us to cower back in the corner and be like, oh, okay, sorry, please forgive us. We'll repent. Bring us back in the fold. At that point, we didn't have any friends. We didn't, we didn't have a life. This was our life. So who bring us back in? But We were just like, you know what? No. So we just laid it out. We were just like, and this, and this, and this, and we're done. So we went home and I hid for a long time because I still live in the same house and they still drive by. This is 16 years later. They would drive by and stare at us. And I was so afraid of them putting curses on us and that terrible things would happen to us that if I had to leave the house, I literally run my car with the kids, throw the kids in it. And leave. And if we saw them drive by, we would just like go the other way. It was just, we were so scared. I was so scared that they would pray curses on me because they, they had, you know, and I believed them. So we just started to live. Our kids went to uh, public school. That's another whole story. If you ever want to talk to my daughter, being a child born in a cult. I will put it out there right now. Haley, I want to talk to you. Like I we got to hear your story and your side of this too. So You see the bullshit, you get thrown on the dung pile, you realize this is ridiculous, they're driving by and harassing you, just like cultists do, just 
you know, leaving little me, yeah. whatever, just yeah. to scare you. It's all, I mean, it doesn't feel harmless at the time and not always is it harmless, but it, it was pretty harmless in, in hindsight just to harass you, just to like keep you in your place and make you scared of them. Yeah. And it kind of worked. Yeah. But you yeah. get out, you decide we're done. Yeah. You're not coming here. And I, I didn't know I was in a cult. Right. You didn't yeah. know that. So that's a big thing too. Right. But you decide yeah. we're not going to that church anymore. We're not listening to that lady anymore. We're going to put our kids in public school. We're going to go back into the secular worldly life that is forbidden. And we're just going to hope for the best because it can't be any worse than what we're doing right now. You got it. And so how has it been since? Well, you know, we had to kind of deconstruct like our nomenclature, the, even the language, the way of thinking. We started going to counseling. Our, our kids, they were great with the academics. Even though I didn't know what I was doing. I barely had a high school diploma, but they tested well, but they socially and, and all that, they'd never played sports. I mean, they're all amazing musicians. And that was one thing that I'm glad that we did was we really tried to foster everything that they like to do. So we, you know, we support them, but it hasn't been easy. All three of them had some, you know, hard road in, in public school because they didn't know how to adjust and fit in, you know, so that was tough, especially for my oldest, for Haley. Yeah. So now you are here talking to me. So obviously things turned around and everything is good now. How does life feel now compared to how it felt back then? Now I, I feel like I can express myself. I can be myself. I know now that that crap that was put in my head to beat my down or to have doubts. I kind of pretty much know that the devil's not lying to me, that I can have my own thoughts. I can make my own decisions. And now I have the tools. I have the vocabulary to know, hey, I was in a cult. And I found people that I can talk to because you can like go to the grocery store and be like, hi, my name's Marilyn. Uh, I'm a cult survivor. People will look at you funny. But I've found people that I can talk to. I heard about you from the Fair Game podcast. And that's like one of my favorite episodes. I've listened to it a billion times. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that lady, she is my spirit animal. I've got to meet her someday. <laughs> and this is this is wild. This is just so cool. Love Mike and Leah. I know. And, you know, I, I know it sounds crazy, but in a way they kind of saved my life. I mean, watching the aftermath just really helped me to understand what I had been through. And I could put words to it. And I was like, holy shit, I was in a cult. Oh, my God, that's what it was. And even just the thought of it, I'd be like, oh, no, you know, you're waiting for the lightning bolt. But then I was like, no, I really was. And there's no doubt in my mind now that that's what it was. But I was just scared to even think or breathe it, you know? Yeah. I hope Leah really understands the ripple effect of the pebble that she threw into that cult pond where she gave us language Absolutely. for what was happening to us. And we were yeah. able to see ourselves in the atrocities and abuses of Scientology, even if they were tiny, to open Absolutely. up and help that crack of this cognitive dissonance open up and say, hey, something's off and it feels like this. You should dig a little deeper because I would have never connected the cult as fast as I did. I think I probably would have gotten there eventually. But as fast as I did, if I mm -hmm. was not looking back 
at Mike and Leah and them basically saying, hey. And I also believe Claire Headley had a part in that because I believe it was her speaking on that episode that made me go, "Uh uh-oh. So Claire's involved and she doesn't even know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really hope they understand the impact that they've had for all cult survivors because I really think they gave us the language to allow us to dig deeper on our own and figure out what cult we were in. Absolutely. The courage too, because I wasn't dealing with a $3 billion call. It was just a little, you know, group of 50 people, but you know, there are thousands of little cults like that. No one's ever heard of Door of Hope or Marlene Sweeney until now. I'm making sure I can say her name, shout it from the rooftop. She earned it. So in case you haven't heard, her name is Marlene Sweeney and she's 85 years old and she lives up the road. (laughs) Marlene Sweeney. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to say it out into the universe and then the universe can do its thing. Yep. So what do you do now to keep those idle hands busy? Okay, well, I uh, I crochet <laughs> and uh, I used to put on YouTube videos. I still crochet, still do. I was doing some little like, craft fairs and I had a booth in the store and I started doing amigurumi, which is a fancy way of doing little stuffed animals. And so I would just put on, you know, TV at night. And when Fair Game Podcast ended, I started looking at different YouTube videos, got really into watching A.A. Ron and then Clara Mark Headley. And of course, Mike Rinder, when he came back on the scene, I was like, yes, oh my God, Mike's back. And I bought a little bobblehead to help support the Aftermath Foundation, which I think is, is wonderful. And I started making these little these little things to go on the bobblehead. I styled them after uh, Zenu from from South Park, and so I made one for <laughs> a contest they were having. They were having a contest for pictures of Mike Rinder's bobblehead just doing silly things. So I crocheted him a senior outfit and I sent the picture in. And Mark Headley was like, "I need one of these. I want. I need one of these." So. I was like, okay. So I didn't have a pattern. It was just kind of in my head. So I made three of them. I sent one to Mark Render. Of course, I had to send him one. And Claire and Mark and, and Aaron. And they loved it. And so all of a sudden, I had all these people wanting them. So that's kind of how I got to be, you know, known. I had just been a lurker. And I never said hi in the chat or anything. But that one thing just made, like, you know, now I'm involved. And I just started you know, talk to people. I had, I have a Facebook group and got a lot of people to join the Facebook group. And then I all of a sudden, one day I just decided to give a little, little bit of my story. Just, I went on the Facebook group and I told just, you know, a couple paragraphs of what had happened to me, nothing really in depth. And Kelly Copter, who has a pretty big YouTube channel, read it. And she's like, she's from the UK. And she's like, Hey darling, would you like to uh, tell me your story on my channel? And I was like, like all I had was an old Chromebook. I didn't have like nothing, no microphone. I never, I had never told my story from start to finish ever. And, but she was sweet. And, and I said, okay, why not? What, what the hell? Why not? So I sat there and told her my story from, took about an hour and a half. And I didn't, I can't believe I didn't break down. I'd never done that from start to finish. And as soon as she hit stop and she said, you did great, Holly, you know, 
my my British accent sucks, so just say it. But as soon as she said, "How do you feel?" Uh, the floodgates open, and I bawled and bawled. and I didn't even know this girl. I probably knew her for a week. I bawled my eyes out because I had never told my story from start to finish like that, and it started to get easier. And I started to make little appearances on other people's channels. And I have this this friend online that has a channel. And uh, Duncan and I have been on his channel and stuff. And they were encouraging me. These two guys, uh, Clearwater Chad and Poe on the Go and Denver Steve, these guys were encouraging me to make a channel. And so sometime in this past June, I did and I just started making little videos and then I started having people on and they were telling me their stories. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. It's a great community and we call it SPTV. Yeah. And that's how we met because one of my best friends, Michelle is heavily involved yes. with SPTV and runs their discord. Everybody over here knows Michelle. She helps me too. I love Michelle. Uh, and she put us in touch. She was like, you have to meet Marilyn. You will love her. And I do. You're great. You're fantastic. I'm so happy that you have found so much healing on the other side. I think the cult space is one of the best healing spaces to be being able to talk about your similarities with everybody else's things and Scientology and SPTV. Those guys are just amazing. I love them so much. They are. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the name of your Facebook page again? It's called Coffee, Cults and Crafts. Coffee, Cults and Crafts. Yes. I'm just, I'm so happy that you're here and we'll put all of the contact info so everybody can find you on all social media okay. and follow your sure. channel and check you out on SPTV and all of that in the show notes. But at the end of my little chats with people, we have rapid fire questions, which sometimes are rapid, sometimes they're not. But are you ready to answer a couple questions for me? Oh, give it a shot. <laughs> I'm not great under pressure. <laughs> I think you're going to do fine. Give me one word that encompasses how you feel about cults. Uh, stifling. Give me a warning to somebody who is thinking about joining a cult-like group, like you explained in this story. Yeah. Research. Find somebody who has been in it that has left and talk to them and make, make up your own mind. What is your worst memory about your experience with Door of Hope? How they targeted my children. I can take a lot of abuse on myself, but once they mess with my children, they messed with my mama bear instinct, and that was that was a wrong thing to do. Give me the hardest lesson that you learned from this experience in your life. I learned to not believe because they seem more confident than I am because uh, I'm worth listening to myself and listening to my heart. And then finally, we like to end on a positive over here. So give me a positive takeaway from this experience. I realized that I'm stronger than I thought. And I'm just so happy to live every day to the fullest and have my family. And I found where I belong and I have a great community of friends and, and uh, I can love life and enjoy it. I love that. Thank you so much, Marilyn. This was a heavy chat, but we hit so many topics that we've been covering this past year that I thought that we got to get into this story. So I really appreciate you being so candid and so open and sharing everything that happened to you in your life. Thank you. It was just a pleasure to talk with you and meet you. And this is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Hans.